Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 16, Daphne O'Regan, Eyeing the Body to Find Truth. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Daphne O'Regan. Daphne is an associate clinical professor of law at Michigan State University College of Law, where she is director of the Research, Writing, and Advocacy Program. Her scholarly works focus on rhetoric, persuasion, and advocacy. Daphne's current article is entitled Eyeing the Body to Find Truth, How Classical Rhetoric's Rules for Demeanor Distort and Sustain Our Legal Regime. It is forthcoming in the Pace Law Review. In the article, Daphne uses ideas from classical rhetoric to contextualize the conventional norms of courtroom behavior and the standard assumption that jurors can assess witness credibility by observing demeanor. From the standpoint of an attorney in court, these ideas from rhetoric can be powerful advocacy tools that help lawyers communicate and persuade. From the perspective of the legal system and its goal of accurate results, they are potentially troubling in the sense that the norms are not value neutral and may provide advantages or disadvantages to certain groups completely aside from the merits of their cases. Daphne discusses all of these issues and then offers some suggestions going forward. Daphne, thanks for agreeing to be on Excited Utterance. Wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm excited about discussing my article with you. Before we begin, perhaps you can tell our audience a little bit about your background in classical rhetoric and why you chose to import the ideas from there into the legal proof process. I have an MA and a PhD from Cornell University in classical literature, and my particular interest was the overlap between philosophy and rhetoric and politics. So I wrote about Cicero and the Stoics, and then I wrote about Aristophanes, Cloud, Socrates, and the Sophists. All of those works are about rhetoric, essentially, and how it operates. Then when I came to law school, I had a really sort of seminal experience, which was I was told in my 1L legal writing class when we got to advocacy that I would not want to do anything like slap my knee which just stunned me because that had been a marker of popular rhetoric ever since early Athenian democracy. And it had recurred as a marker of lack of credibility of popular orators. And so I was just absolutely amazed to hear this because it's redundant. It's unnecessary information that only has one function, and that is to orient you towards the now hidden norms in many instances of elite rhetoric. So let's talk about elite rhetoric. In your article, you discuss what are essentially two types of speakers that emerge out of classical rhetoric, the elite speaker versus the non-elite or popular speaker. Can you tell us about the characteristics of those speakers and what distinguishes them? It's important to understand that these speakers evolved as societies were moving from aristocratic basis to a more representational basis, even if the representation was through a very minor subset of the population, namely free men of a certain class. Elite speakers embodied aristocratic virtues, and when these processes began, this is a gross overstatement, right? So we're just talking in very general terms. 
the elite demeanor was a demeanor that was essentially martial, and it conveyed social capital and strength simultaneously through a series of coded types of gestures like a slow walk, very upright posture, very steady gaze, limited gesticulation, a low voice, and all of these plus a few others, they not only conveyed one's position in society, but they were a claim to virtue. This emerges very clearly in the overlap between credibility, truth, rationality, and these particular gestures that still is very clear in trial manuals today. It's important to understand that popular speaker emerged sort of in distinction to or as a counterpart of the elite speaker. For example, Athens entered what we call radical democracy. That is not necessarily a name I agree with. So when speakers started coming from lower classes and the voting base enlarged itself, they made a new claim to power that had to do with affiliation and demonstration of understandings of alternate truths, in other words, non-aristocratic truths, about how the state should be organized. And that was reflected in their delivery, which is the fifth canon of rhetoric, which is what we call demeanor. They had much larger gestures. They disordered their clothing. They spoke in much louder voices. They frequently had high voices, which is quite interesting. And all of these things were intentional violations of elite norms to demonstrate a posture that was not elite. But at the same time, they were adoption of everything that the elite posture had positioned itself. Because if the elite posture claims rationality and credibility for itself, then it assigns weakness and therefore emotionality and an unfortunate inability to sustain truth to other demeanors. So what we have here is the elite, rational, calm, cold, and collected speaker and the popular, more emotional speaker. I saw two real distinct applications of this dichotomy in your paper. The first is an implication for oral advocacy, namely how lawyers need to behave to deliver information in court. And then the second is some implication on how jurors might assess witness credibility. This is a little different from the structure in your paper, but if you don't mind, I'm going to explore it in this order. So let's talk about the oral advocacy part first. How does this division help us understand conventional rules of courtroom decorum and how we teach oral advocates to present themselves? I'm happy to answer the question, but I want to make very clear before I start answering that these demeanors are claims to rationality and demonstrations of emotion. They are not actually embodying rationality or emotion. They're social claims. You can be just as irrational with an elite demeanor, and you can be completely rational with a popular demeanor. And in fact, they can be used as strategies. Oral advocacy. Let's start with the trial aspect first, if you don't mind, because it'll explain my views on oral advocacy. The elite rational connection means that elite decorum is frequently enforced in trials because the dominant social narrative will lead to a more rational decision. Juries, on the other hand, are associated with popular rhetoric, so they're always suspected of being susceptible to emotion, whether or not that's true. And judges are associated with elite decorum and generally have the rational pull assigned to them. 
when popular rhetoric enters the courtroom because of its association with irrationality and the association with groups of lower class individuals, which is how we conceptualize the jury usually, it becomes very suspect because from the elite perspective, it's going to lead to decision based on inappropriate considerations. So in general, elite norms are enforced in even trials to protect the so-called rationality and truth-finding function of the trial. Now, a lot of times defense advocates particularly feel that this interferes with zealous advocacy because of the underpinning of the idea of affiliation with groups of people who may or may not be susceptible to elite demeanor. So they will frequently try to employ popular demeanor. Bear in mind that this is a strategic choice. These people, same people, if they were to argue an appellate argument, they would probably not use popular demeanor in this context. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee you that they wouldn't. So it's a strategy, but it's one that goes along with our whole assignment of rationality and irrationality throughout the trial and appellate sequence which is usually the assignment of irrationality is connected with popular delivery and connected with the jury, and the assignment of rationality is connected with elite delivery and connected with judges. It's all strategy, as you suggest, but oftentimes these elite norms are enforced by the court. You talk about this United States v. Dowdy case where the court chastises the lawyer for engaging in overly emotional displays. Does the enforcement of the elite norm potentially hurt certain positions or parties? That's a very difficult question to answer. The answer is, practically speaking, yes. Putting the government on trial is frequently associated with popular rhetoric and has been historically since, for example, Iraqi and ancient Rome. So if you want to convey that this is what you're doing, it is very useful to be able to use popular style. It reinforces your message in a very dramatic way that's easily understood by participants in this culture. There are many people who are not acculturated into elite decorum. Most attorneys who have passed through law school are acculturated, but many witnesses and so forth are not acculturated into elite decorum. And because of the association of elite decorum and credibility and non-elite demeanor with deception that puts witnesses of any sort who do not participate in the elite tradition at a grave risk of being discounted as liars. At the same time, it has been demonstrated many times that standard measures of deception through physical demeanor simply do not convey accurate information, particularly in a trial setting. People are really not able to detect liars through physical manifestations. So you have an enforcement of elite decorum. You have the assignment of deception or at least lack of credibility. Those are not precisely the same thing to non-elite decorum. You have jury instructions informing juries to look at the demeanor of witnesses. Those all add up to a perfect storm for some unfortunate witnesses and parties who do not participate in the elite cultural paradigm. This is a great segue to that second implication that I had, which is the implications of these classical rhetorical ideas to the witness context. One issue that I'm a little puzzled about is the fact that a witness not observing elite norms is going to be disadvantaged. So to the extent that the jury comes from a more popular background, 
wouldn't a witness not schooled in the elite norms of the legal profession actually do better than a witness that was schooled somehow or coached to be more of an elite witness? There are several things I need to say in response to that. Judges perform many, many actions, both before and after litigation, as well as, of course, being the decision maker in many trials. And although judges have been more highly trained, they, too, have been very thoroughly acculturated in the elite paradigm. Learning the elite paradigm is a primary focus of law school. Secondly, people can be from non-elite backgrounds and still be acculturated there's lots of evidence that the dominant social narrative will apply even to people who are disadvantaged by that narrative. So while an attorney can use the elite popular dichotomy as a strategy, a witness really might not have that ability or probably doesn't have that ability to modulate their demeanor to be the most satisfactory demeanor possible. And that is particularly true of vulnerable witnesses such as disabled people, people from other cultural groups, traumatized people, and a whole range of other people that you can imagine who because they actually physically cannot manifest the correct demeanor. They're in grave danger of being misassessed. And the mere fact that juries have some people sometimes that might be participants in the same group as the witnesses, and I hate using the word group because of the fact that some people cannot manifest elite decorum. But they're also not necessarily manifesting popular demeanor. It's important to realize that popular demeanor is just as much a factor of strategy and cultural complexes. They could be manifesting completely flat demeanor, for example, if they're traumatized. And flat demeanor or an averted gaze or fidgeting or an agitated voice, those are all things that juries and judges and other people too frequently take as indications of lying, which they most certainly have been shown not to be a trustworthy way of assessing people's credibility. This is very interesting. What you're saying here is that it's not just this dichotomy, that there are these two ways of practicing rhetoric, which can be effective in various ways. But then there are ways of presenting material which are outside these two, which actually may be detrimental in all respects or in all conditions. Sadly, that is true. I mean, yes. This is something of great interest and something I'm working on because, as you know, I propose the complete blinding or screening of decision makers. If you were a jury, you would see nobody. Basically, you might see your other jurors. You wouldn't see the attorney, judge, parties, witnesses, etc., a complete screening will remove this problem. Another virtue of screening that we have not talked about enough is this. It's not just that you can get misleading assessments of credibility by looking at demeanor and that there are strategies of elite and popular rhetoric that allow people to manipulate common preconceptions about demeanor and the attachment between rationality, truth, and credibility in various ways. It's that this is the inappropriate channel for assessing truthfulness. There's a lot of research that shows that simply listening to what's said in accounting for word choice, level of detail, and all that is the correct way to assess credibility. So when you encourage people to assess credibility through their eyes, they will probably be paying less attention to, to what they're hearing. And essentially, you're distorting the channel that is most likely to bring them to an accurate assessment. Say some more about that. 
One of the things that came into my mind when I thought about this screening proposal was whether you were simply picking on demeanor or visual cues and neglecting the fact that there are many ways that we assess a person's position in society or we assess their credibility, which may or may not actually have any empirical basis. So someone looking at accent or word choice, those are things that are also social cues that have advantages and disadvantages outside the merits of what the person is saying. So why is it that demeanor is particularly pernicious? The first reason that demeanor is particularly pernicious is because people are explicitly instructed to pay attention to it, and it forms the basis for appellate levels of review. So it's written very, very deeply into our institutional structures in a way that the others are not. But I agree with you that there are many cues to inappropriate assessment of other human beings' statements or performance, if you want to think about it like that. If we think about it as performance, of course, we'll go back to the classic Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra blind editions. And I think I read, this is just an aside, because honestly, I'd have to go back and research this, that after a while, they also muffled the floor because people were getting inappropriate cues from the sound of people's shoes. And so they were drawing the conclusion that some players were women and some players were men, which was, of course, the entire purpose of a blind edition was to avoid that. For example, as you say, there's lots of work showing that names can trigger implicit bias that can lead to bias in, for example, job applicants. And all of those things are true, and I am not disputing that at all. And it's possible that a more complete screening would be even better. You have to ask yourself, why is it necessary to know the witness's name and address? I mean, somebody needs to know it to make sure that it is actually that person, but is it really necessary for the decision maker? If we were to use the model of blinded and double-blinded medical trials where they try to eliminate bias, explicit and implicit bias, in making critically important decisions, and I hope we can agree that the legal system is also making critically important decisions, long ago they recognized that people inadvertently can distort data to arrive at improper decisions. And there's levels of blindings that are just patient blinding, then patient and doctor blinding, and finally review blinding so that a different person reviews the results that are designed to eliminate as much distortion as possible. And if the trial, and I'm not saying it is actually, is a truth-seeking mechanism, there is absolutely no reason why we should not adopt the level of blinding that would be appropriate to eliminate explicit and implicit bias that can distort that decision. It's fascinating that this solution to the problem removes a lot of the theatrical aspects of trial, and what you end up with is something that is considerably more sanitized and perhaps more accurate, but as you suggest, it's not clear that that's what we actually want. A final question for you before we wrap up, and I ask this question largely of everyone on the show, where do you see the future work being done in this space? Is it psychological studies on the things that make juries go astray? Or is it more work in the rhetoric space? What interests me now is two things. A more complete blinding, like you were suggesting, and how to get to blinding as a solution. And I want to point out that I am not the first person to suggest blinding parts of trial. Chet Pager and Jeremy Blumenthal already suggested this in very, very significant and good articles. 
one of the things that I like about blinding a decision maker is the metaphor is very powerful. And, and if you think of juries as an important place for people to enact their roles as citizens, it's very powerful to be told and to realize about yourself every day I am making inappropriate judgments about people based on information that I don't even know I'm processing. That is implicit bias, of course. And the second thing is that I've noticed that in asylum hearings, let's not forget that there's huge numbers of administrative judges out there. They don't even have juries, and they're making critically important decisions all the time. The impact of demeanor in those decisions where you're dealing with traumatized people of other cultures has already started to be somewhat problematic, as you can probably imagine. And they've already started to elucidate very clearly other ways of assessing credibility of statements, ways that have been shown in research to be much more effective, some of the ways that I already talked about. So I'm interested in working on that aspect of it a bit more. Daphne, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think that your background in classical rhetoric provides a really unique and interesting perspective for viewing evidence and the proof process. And I look forward to seeing all of your future work in this space. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Daphne's article, with its focus on rhetoric and advocacy, is arguably atypical fair in the evidence world. It's not about admissibility rules or even evidentiary burdens. But there's little doubt that advocacy and presentation are important and fundamental aspects of the process of proof, and we need to understand them in order to understand how the legal system tries to obtain accurate results. It's always interesting and striking to see how various conventions can often be traced to roots in antiquity. Uncovering those roots also allows us to realize that the conventions are contingent, and thus makes us more accepting of social scientific findings suggesting that they may not be all that they're cracked up to be. Just because we think people can ferret out lying through observing a witness's demeanor does not mean that it is so. Similarly, just because courts think that attorneys should follow what Daphne calls elite norms of behavior as a matter of courtroom decorum or tradition doesn't necessarily mean that those norms promote accuracy in decision-making. So where does the structure of trial go from here? Daphne's radical solution seems to involve blinding to reduce the influence of demeanor. This solution, though, raises some tough questions. Where does the blinding end? Do we remove voice and turn everything into documentary evidence? How do we deal with word choice? And as we make trials more and more abstract in the name of accuracy, have we lost the essential humanity of trial? But then again, we have to remember that not only is trial itself an artificial construct, but the rules of evidence blind juries in various ways. So perhaps Daphne's solution is really not all that different from what we already do. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.